step one You say we need to talk He walks You say sit down It's just talk He smiles politely back at you You stare politely right on through Some sort of window to your right She goes left and you stay right Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Poor. And Bill, it is a Tuesday. It is a Tuesday. And we just were talking about the fact that our president has threatened North Korea with fire and fury. I'm pretty sure that he should stop watching Game of Thrones. That's my first response. There's no way Donald Trump watches Game of Thrones. I think he thinks we have dragons. I think he watched that and thought it was Fox uh, News maybe documentary. Yeah. The best I give him is he's seen the Fantastic Four, maybe like the Human Torch. <laughs> you, no, you don't think he watches Game of Thrones. No, I mean, no, no, seriously. This is a horrendously dangerous situation. Um, for the Korean folks on the peninsula, for thousands of U.S. troops on the peninsula, for Jap- Japan, for whichever way the wind bros- blows, for some, possibly some U.S. city as well. So, And for people who drive Hyundais, because parts... Yeah, no, it's, be it could be... Um, Do you know the Philadelphia, the new trains that we have are, I think, made by Hyundai? I didn't know that. Or Kia, one of the... But here's the thing, they had to recall them all. They were the first trains... It was Hyundai or Kia ever made. So, uh, so we took a gamble. We were early adopters. We got a, we, <laughs> good, news, good news, we got a deal. Bad news. We were early adopters. Sometimes no, you want to wait for the operating yeah. system to roll out. But uh, all seriousness, talking about Game of Thrones, uh, you know, Martin had uh, nuclear weapons in mind when he talked about – when he created the dragons. I mean, there was an inter- a little article in Atlantic that talked about that, that they're kind of the weapons of mass destruction. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of things that are – Lovable yeah. weapons of mass destruction, at least if you have to them, their If they're on your side, they're lovable. But, uh, yeah, it, it was a quite a um, – it's, it's a dangerous time. And I'm, um, I pray for the people who, are, who, have, uh, who, who have Donald Trump's ear right now. I pray for wisdom. Yeah. And uh, the Chinese need to just do a regime change. Yeah. They could do that. So, And we pray for the people of Westeros. <laughs> well, Looks yeah. like Daenerys make, is making some prudent things. She attacked a military target. Yeah, did you, I didn't read it. There was a, someone put an article. There's an article by us at the Gospel Coalition, why, why Christians shouldn't watch Game of Thrones. I don't care. <laughs> I'm just thinking, I'm thinking, why Christians should not read anything that the Gospel Coalition puts out. But, yeah. yeah. I mean, I just, it's mixed. I mean, there's some stuff on that site that's not bad. I mean, I mean they do publish some things there, but it's a, it's a wide range and that, there is a wide and that is wide far of anything that I care about. Yeah. I mean, actually, it is something I care about, which is why I don't like it. <laughs> well, they're on, the, they're on the wall there. Uh, yeah, someone once brought me. I, it's the poor Maybe the, some of them need to actually take the black. Uh, <laughs> we can only hope. Yes, I, it was, it's interesting. Yeah, someone, when the, when the um, shack first came out, someone was all upset in my church and brought me. I, didn't, I don't know why that person felt the need to, to print it all out. It was like 60 pages they printed all out of everything the Gospel Coalition thought was wrong with the shack. And uh, not, I'm not defending the I don't shack. even know how long the shack is. 60 pages. It's like a 200-page book. Of 60 I, said, pages well, of I, I said, obviously, the one, the... Uh, Whoever whoever did the critique, the Gospel Coalition critique of the of uh, the Trinitarian thought of the shack did not do much work in seminary on the Trinity. Because, uh, the the theology of the shack was was closer on the Trinity to orthodoxy than what our brothers and I emphasize brothers the Gospel Coalition were writing. <laughs> 
Well, there we go. Yeah. Such as it is. Anyway, Never but yeah, we pray. No, praying, praying for, uh, praying for a peaceful and diplomatic solution. And that um, I hope they've seen the interview. Maybe we can get a cover, some covert yeah, journalists. Know. In. I don't know. Yeah, Dennis Rodman, Dennis help Rod- us. Yeah, Dennis Rodman. There would be an irony. <laughs> That's the only thing between <laughs> nuclear war and peace. Dennis Rodman. Yeah, Dennis. All right. So, Bill, we have you've written a piece in the Mockingbird magazine, "The End of Ambition." Grief and the Pastor. Um, you open with a great Christian Wyman quote, by the way. Sorrow is so woven through us, so much a part of our souls, or at least understanding of our souls, that we're able to retain that every experience is dyed with its color. That is why even in moments of joy, part of the joy is the seams of ore that are our sorrow. Are our sorrow. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it'd be, um, I I used to give a lecture. I mean, I've given this lecture probably half a dozen times for a friend and colleague of mine uh, when she was teaching a seminary class on grief and dying, and and I think also different. I, I've taught it in different other classes as well. But and the, this was actually the the title of the lecture, and the lecture was both kind of a theology of suffering as well as. Um, you know, pastoral approaches to dealing with grief and crisis and trauma and things like that. Uh, that was the lecture, but this article turned out to be a much more personal. Uh, what, what's the, how the article initially was conceived in my head and what it became were two very different things. Yeah, I mean, you talk about your early experiences of death and being shaped by the Bible. You also mentioned that you were worried about the lamb's blood in the door when you were oh, in yeah. Texas because you were firstborn, right? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I didn't have to go. I didn't have to stay under J. Christian Becker to be apocalyptic. I mean, uh, I was raised with the, you know, I said back when, when they taught the Bible or uh, <laughs> my early Bible teaching in, in West Virginia and then South Central Pennsylvania, they didn't do the children filter stuff. You got it straight up. So I was, I knew about the Passover story uh, in, in Exodus and uh, somehow I looked on the, I knew the Passover over in Easter were close together, and I was staying with my grandparents, and I'm the firstborn. So I was trying to talk my grandfather into putting blood on the door because I felt I was in jeopardy. And he said he didn't have any lamb's blood, but he had some deer antlers. So he thought that would take care of it. Well, there you go. <laughs> and the death angel passed me by that day. I like it. Yeah. I like it. Then you also you talk about the bulk of the pieces that you had a series of deaths that were, were teenage, like kid, teenage kids, right? That were. Yeah, there was a, there was a really horrific period of time. And even uh, the center of this kind of what I call the dying year. Uh, it was 1999, right? 1999. Yeah, and actually some things that happened even before that, including the death of my uh, my uh, grandmother, who was very influential in my life. But yeah, there were uh, five girls were going to um, get prom, prom dresses. They were members of my oldest son's class. And they um, wrecked the car and all five of them were killed. Now there were some they were getting a little bit high. They were high as well. And I mean, that kind of became a side story. But these five very uh, <clears throat> full of life, uh, popular girls were killed in a car accident. And about a month and a half later, uh, there were four kids that were murdered by uh, the father of two of the kids. Uh, he was a psychologically unstable, dis- um, had a psychological discharge from the military, got a gun, legally bought a gun, and shot his own kids who were a uh, kindergartner and a disabled uh, older kid and then two brothers 14 and 15 who just happened to be at their house watching television and those two boys were 
teammates of my second son. So in the course of six weeks, I performed funerals for three teenagers and was part of the grief counseling uh, team for the other groups. Yeah. Yeah, and you mentioned like feeling weird that you, your church experienced a season of growth as a result of connection you had with people, the you know the immediate family and the, and then friends and family of, of the of the family, and 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 the weirdness of of of, of that dynamic. Yeah, I, I really I, I I kind of became the parish or the the parish priest of that community partially because of just being present, had a great relationship with the principal of the school. Um, and, you know, there were people who came to one of the funerals I did and didn't leave, uh, uh, including some African-American folks. The two brothers were African-American. And, uh, um, in fact, the reason I did the funeral for them was because there was kind of bickering among the, the clergy who was due to the funeral. And a woman who was a member who was a clergy and was also a, a friend of the family came and asked me to do it. And that's how I got that's how I got involved in it. Um, so yeah, it was one of those very strange. I mean, I was, um, I had counselors coming to me for counseling, teachers, administrators, parents, and things like that. And so we really, as a congregation, were right in kind of the middle of caring for this community. And um, it was, it was one of those things where, you know, we often talk about, uh, you know, we live in a time where clergy are often marginalized in the public space, uh, but it was quite the contrary. And I think it, uh, there was something at times that would dawn on me, you know, again, we do get affirmation by being needed and wanted and seen as important. And that um, I was put in that position because of horrific tragedies and violence that happened to kids that just that's those kind of things just shouldn't happen to kids it does all the time but it just never you know i will never get over for the rest of my life i'll always remember watching parents bury their children i can't that's something I'll, that stays with me forever yeah and then you talk about being in like guatemala a couple of years later right or, and about a year that was about a year and a half later yeah here. and then you're just like you're, oh, you're done yeah, you know, it's like there's yeah. just something in you that was like, I, I'm, 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 I'm done here. I'm done. Yeah. And it was on the uh, something. It was on the heels of a celebration of something you guys had built there. <laughs> we were, I know, it was, we were putting together a medical clinic. <clears throat> um, this got edited. I think this has got edited out of, of the article. But I, um, one ver. I mean, I knew that. Th- I just knew the thing wasn't going to work. Um, but there, everybody there thought it was, uh, and there was this great celebration where the you know large people in the village came out, and there were speeches. And you mean a large amount of people, or the large people? <laughs> no, well, there were giants in the well, they were, No, they were un, un, too many malnourished Mayans, for, unfortunately. But yeah, there were lots of people there, and uh, yeah, they were praising what we had done, and uh, we had a very meaningful trip down there it was both medical and and construction and also working with some kids and uh but i'm sitting there in the midst of it and i uh i, I tell a story where i was holding this little boy it was the cutest little boy and he looked to be like two years old and um and I asked the mother how old he was, and he was like five and a half. And there was something, just the whole combination of things, realizing this child had, was, is never going to catch up because all the things that need to happen, you know, developmentally from two to five, this child was malnourished and sweet little boy. Um, and I, I think everything combined just was now, – now, no one around me knew that I was done, but something really broke inside of me at that point. Do you think it's interesting that kind of Western Christian tradition, we die because we sinned. And in the Eastern tradition, it's more like we sin because we die. 
Do you yeah. Think, which is different. I mean, yeah. in the sense of the our fragility, the awareness of our mortality and fragility creates the kind of fear and dread and anxiety that cause us to to walk in patterns of sin and self-destruction and shadows. It seems like there's something to that. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think, you know, for Paul, the problem is both sin and death, both our human brokenness and also our humanity. I mean, being human. Uh, yeah, and I do think, I think that, um, you know, the, the, you know and, and, and how do you, how do you, you, you can't repent of being mortal. You, 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 that's not the answer. I mean, that's the, the answer there is, you know, transformation is uh, the power of the resurrection. But that's, yeah, I think sometimes, I do, I think sometimes the, you know, the model, okay, I'm, I'm redeemed by grace and we're part of the transformation, the coming kingdom of God, and we're moving and shaking, doing things for the kingdom of God. Uh, uh, sometimes that runs right smack into the wall of mortality. Yeah. You know, I think Marilyn McCord Adams... Uh, blessed memory, I should die this year. It was a great philosopher, sort of philosophical theologian. But she, somewhere in one of her books, it's just, you know, if you were going to try to do natural theology, just look at the world and see what you could know of God's intentions. She said that, you know, God must seemingly value diversity and fragility. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. that's the, the nature of the created order. Everything, there's a lot of things and they're all fragile to well, one degree or another. Yeah. There's, and there's, there's, but there's not merely tragedy in the fragility. There's beauty in it as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. I mean, no, this I agree. Is, like, yeah. I, know, I agree what you're saying. Yeah. Because I think one of the stories I tell in the, in the article is about a one of the girls that was killed who had a lot of serious troubles. I mean, she had a lot of struggles for her age and uh, seemed to be getting her life together. And uh, she um, <laughs> she made this remarkable difference in people's lives by just noticing them. Um, you know, she uh, used to, there was a girl that was pregnant. This is a school that too many girls got pregnant or, or they got pregnant. They didn't go to term. It's, I should re, I should rephrase that. Suburban community. So there were a lot of pregnant girls walking around and this girl was kind of pregnant and, you know, a little bit ostracized and she would come talk to the, her, the, the stomach, her stomach, this girl's stomach all the time and talk to the baby. And, um, you know, there was a, uh, a mentally challenged or a physically challenged kid that she'd always take time to talk to. And then, uh, uh, one of the central stories in the article is uh, uh, a <clears throat> conversation I had with a young vampire. Uh, yeah, there was a kid showed up with satanic stuff on him. He was this you know, skinny, pale, punky ninth grade kid, and uh, you know he had uh, "Die God" on his notebook. <laughs> I hate like I hate anything, any show or book where vampire like the Twilight Series where vampires are at all protagonists. They're evil. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the like I don't I don't think vampires are ever sympathetic. I don't I don't think vampires that if with the exception of with the exception of the exception proves the rules Abraham Lincoln vampire sir. There's one vampire in there that like is fighting the other vampires, but he's the exception that well, proves Barnabas the rules. Barnabas Collins, this is before your time, but all those who are my age or older remember Dark Shadows. He was he was a good vampire, but. Anyway. Bullshit. <laughs> so this no, this kid was. Oh, uh, I did like Angel too, the Buffy the Empire Slayer stuff. So there are two. There we go. There are two. Like, ah, yeah, there's a couple. Maybe all of the, yeah. Let us know what you, who your favorite vampire Foolish is. Consistent. Yeah, the guy Fool- the preacher is good. The vampire yeah, preacher is good. Foolish guy. consistency is the hobgoblin of the narrow yeah. mind, saith Emerson. So. But uh, this kid, this kid was. Uh, he had this. He had this. Uh, 
weird thing on. I said, what's that? And he goes, he goes, I'm a vampire. That means I'm a vampire. I go, oh, you're a vampire. And he goes, yeah, but well, I'm kind of a vampire in training. I go, well, does that mean you just eat the, drink the blood of young, small mammals or something like that? And I actually made the kid laugh. And uh, he said this girl was his best friend. And I asked him, uh, which I felt was highly unlikely, because uh, he seemed to be one of the people that she would be least interested in. And it turned out, I asked, well, how is she your best friend? And he goes, she smiled and said hi to me every morning. And so this obviously this person who uh, had a lot of darkness in his life, uh, this, this girl who saw, who saw him, she saw him. Um, uh, that made him, that made her his best friend. So those are things I was, I did her funeral. I was able to talk about that. And, um, and so there, you know, there was this fragile life, a life that, uh, snuffed out too short, um, with not without its struggles, uh, but she had made a difference, and particularly in people, and maybe it was her own pain, I'm sure it was her own pain, that helped her see beyond the pain of others. She left the planet way too soon. Yeah, and you have this, in the end, you have an ellipsis in the last section, where you quote Thomas Halik, which is, he says, mystery, unlike a mere dilemma, cannot be overcome. One must wait patiently at its threshold and persevere in it must carry it in one's heart. And that is kind of the relationship with our mortality, right? I mean, Kierkegaard talks about, you know, us wire being cre- these creatures. What does he say? Where does he say? To the God who shits. Like, this is what you realize you are in human development. Like, you're godlike. You can cry and, p- and people meet your needs and give you food, and yet you can't control your bowels. Right, right. <laughs> and then, you know, but you have this, like, but that is, like, the, the mystery of the human condition, right? Like, that we have eternity in our hearts, and yet our the ventricles of those hearts are so fragile. Yeah. And and you know, the power of I mean, you know, I remember uh this this isn't in the in the article, but I probably you know I mean it's hard to rank tragedy, but I walked with this uh this woman uh in her family, Dr. Ann Bates. Um an amazing woman. Um <clears throat> was diagnosed she was a pediatric physician at DuPont. Um had a brain tumor. Uh had to learn to talk and walk all over again. Uh, her uh, husband was the lacrosse coach at um, Drexel. And when I, I mean, I, I watched her learn how to walk and talk again. And, uh, and I happened to be, my son was on the University of Virginia uh, lacrosse team uh, as a freshman, my third son. And I drove her down, uh, went to a, to a lacrosse game and Drexel beat Virginia. Okay. And my <laughs> third son was playing on, was on the field. My youngest son had committed to Virginia and I can still, uh, uh, at, at, it looked like Drexel was going to be Virginia. And I whispered to my son, I go, I'm rooting for Drexel. He said to me, me too. And I, and, uh, and I was always, you know, this is one of the memories that I have of her, that uh, her jumping the fence. Now she was, so this is a woman who had just had recovered from a brain tumor, jumping the fence to embrace uh, her husband on uh, a great day they had. Uh, and she, you know, she beat, beat, uh, leukemia, which she got again. She got leukemia after that and beat that, but then died of a subsequent brain tumor. But one of the things I think she fought so hard, she fought so hard. And I remind, finally remember saying to her, um, you know, just a couple about a month before she died, I said, you know, you've done so well. You've given so much. And, uh, everyone knows, you know, I said, your son will always know how much you loved him. And, you know, I think I've seen it again and again that somehow knowing that and, and somehow at one point where they where they finally give into the inevitable, um, 
I've seen that again and again. There's something, there's something powerful about what the human will can hold on to. And then there's something tragically mysterious and beautiful when they also say yes to, to the inevitable. But, but I've seen people of faith, she's one in particular, and there's other people I remember, that they said yes, and there was peace on their face when they said yes to, it's time for me to, to not fight this anymore. And so I think you're right. I, I think, um, you know, something that uh, it's probably, uh, you know, there's probably no thing in my life it's, that has, I mean, this is the thing that's shaped me the most in my life and my thinking and my ministry. Something I don't, you know, this article is the first time I've really talked about it, but um, it's, it's so much a part of how I look at things. And it's also been a way, I think, to kind of find a place and peace for the own, my own sadness that I carry in me about things. And it's been a redemptive place for that. Costly, and certainly it's, it's, I allowed it to do damage to me, and I didn't, already, I didn't deal with it the way I should often, but it, it has been the great, it's been a great blessing um, for me to do that, but it's a, it's, a, it's a sad blessing. It's very interesting. A couple weeks ago, I think, a couple of months ago, Rob Bell was talking about his podcast, how he wrote this book, which he joked and said, which everybody loved, <laughs> Love Wins. And he says, you know, I was in the cover of Time Magazine. For him growing up, that's like an iconic thing, you know, Time, right, Time sure. Magazine. And he said, you know, I, I just was amazed sitting there. I was at the sh- supermarket and like, oh my God, there it is. I'm on the cover. And he says, you know what happens? Next week, someone else is on the cover. <laughs> And it was very moving because he talked about, look, and I'm not, we're not against, you know, work and excellence and these things, but it's, it's, it's the, it's the, um, it's form and content issue. And what, and the con, the, the content of it, if it's this sort of self aggrandizement and, and to sort of cheat our mortality, it'll always be self destructive because someone will always be on the cover. Right. Someone else will, but, but there is a kind of freedom for life. Oh, when you when when you can accept its fragility, and I, mean, I guess that's part of the the dance. And the yeah, you know, uh, a girl who's, who's uh, well, she's a woman, but she's like a daughter to me. Uh, I always joke, Colleen came to babysit and never left. Uh, and uh, Colleen is is in her second battle with cancer, the kind of cancer that took her mom away so young. And and Colleen right now is at Glacier Park. (laughs) And she's seen all seven wonders of the world. She's been to every continent except Antarctica. And um, I remember when she, she, Colleen had, and she's a beautiful writer and, and, um, I, I need to post some of her stuff on my on on, on Resident Exile. I will do that. But um, I remember she suffered a lot uh, in her life and had a lot of things very bad happen to her. And uh, I, when, I remember her calling me when she was diagnosed with cancer. And uh, she called me and she said, well, you'll be happy to know I believe in God again. Mm. And then she goes, because I have to have someone to be angry at. <laughs> we both laughed. But isn't that, see, that's, uh, you know, that's last week's um, p- passage. Uh, you've wrestled with God and, and, and man. And I think when we wrestle with our own mortality, we're wrestling with ourselves. But I think, I think behind the shadow is the light of God who wrestles with us. And uh, um, I think that's, to me, it's one of the great surprises of this vocation, uh, something I never looked up, thought about really much Uh didn't really think it'd be the part of the ministry that I would find the most um, meaningful, and but it has been, and it's you know why um, why being a ca- pastor to me is uh, one of the greatest privileged positions in, uh, that there can be, uh, and I'm um, 
you you walk on holy ground and you get invited into kind of an intimate spaces that you never I never feel like I belong, but people invite you into those places and uh, um, you know. <laughs> If I find that through all these things, my faith has increased as well as the complexity of my doubts. People can check out your article. You can go to ember.com and order the magazine. Just take 